So Romans chapter 6, and I'll start here at verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. So far this morning. Let us pray and ask for the Spirit to illumine our hearts. Lord God, as we turn to your word now, um, just realize, Lord, I'm just a person. I'm just mere man. Lord, I really can do nothing but proclaim. But Lord, only your Spirit can apply. And so I pray that your spirit would be mightily among us this morning. Lord, you are the one who searches the hearts and knows all things. Lord, you know our thoughts, you know our intents, you know our purposes for being here this morning. Lord, you, you truly are the searcher and the trier of the hearts. And so we pray that you would apply the word this morning, that Christ would be seen and loved and adored and known and received, and that your name would be magnified. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. So this morning, I want to deal with verses 3 through 7, and um, like I said, it's in light of baptism that I wanted to go here this morning, but Romans 6 opens up um, addressing an objection that really gets us back into chapter 5, and peculiarly, if you look at, at how chapter 5 ends, verse 20, speaking about the contrast between the first and second Adam's. It says, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. So in other words, the law of God was given to really show the sinfulness of sin. Because really, who among us can keep the Ten Commandments? Who has perfectly kept the Ten Words? Nobody. I know for many years we did evangelism in Pinocchio, and we would bring the Ten Commandments and just talk about how we've kept them. And the reality is we're all lawbreakers, but... Romans 5 talks about grace abounding, right? Like it says in verse 20, but where sin abounded in us, grace abound, did much more abound. And then it says that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. But the question then would be, well, if, if God forgives us, and the more I sin, his grace is greater yet, then the question is going to be, well, then, Shouldn't we just live it up, do what we want to do, keep sinning because grace covers it all. Grace gets magnified the more I sin. That would be the question. And so the challenge for Christians and for all of us then is, is there really some reason not to keep on sinning, to make grace bigger? And that's how Paul begins this chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says, never, may it never be, God forbid, and so that's where we're at. He's going to show, actually, that what these false teachers in Rome were saying, that, oh, let's just keep on sinning because grace will get bigger. He says, no way, no way. He says, faith does not lead to moral anarchy. Christians, we should not be living whatever we want to do. Absolutely not. And baptism, exactly what we're going to see this morning, actually vividly tells us why it's precisely the opposite. Why being baptized into Jesus Christ means we are new people. 
we have a new course. We chart a new life. We are living for a new Savior, a new Lord, and we're going to see that this morning. So I have four points to draw out of the text, and they all start with a V. Some of them are big words, but I had to find words that started with a V. So (laughs) vanquished, vivified, vitalized, and verified. If you have to look them up in your dictionary, (laughs) go for it later at home. Vanquished, vivified, which means made alive, vitalized, what is vital, and verified, what is true. So first of all, vanquished, verse 3. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Baptism for the Apostle Paul in the New Testament is an initiatory rite that people received when they confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. It was part of the conversion that involved repentance. Repentance means turning the direction of your life and faith, embracing, trusting Christ as your Savior. And therefore, baptism is not an isolated event, something you do separately. It is rather a display of what happens when you come to Jesus Christ by faith. It's all part of it. And so he says, know ye not. And so what he's about to say, rhetorically, he says, this should be known by all of us, by the churches of God. The baptism of a believer into the name of Christ implies that you should know what it signifies. And especially what that means for your life. We don't have baptism services because we think they're kind of neat. And we like doing rituals and getting wet. That's not why we do baptisms. No, we realize that Christ commanded his followers to be baptized. And in baptism, we're telling something. We are saying and declaring in the act something about that has taken place in our lives. That's why we do baptism. Jesus told us to go forth, make disciples, and to baptize them. And so we're going to see, as Paul unpacks this here, be very careful in the text to look at what we would call, in theology, union clauses. Union, to unite. And in union clauses, you're going to see words like into, and in, and with. And so just watch for those words. So it first of all says that as many as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. There's our first union set. Think about what this means. We're not baptized into this church necessarily or into another church. We were not baptized into a system of creeds or confessions or even into what we would formally call Christianity. We are baptized by the Spirit. So physically what happens is talking about a reality that happens in the heart by the Spirit into a person. Jesus Christ, union to Jesus, is at the core. And baptism, what we do in water, pictures that reality. That I, as a believer, by faith, am united to everything Jesus has done. You have, therefore, a new relationship with God. And therefore, a new relationship with sin. Now, what does union really mean? Well, we can think of it in terms of what we know in our experience. Maybe you can think I've united to a sports team. I join a sports team. I share in all the benefits of the team. I get the jersey. 
I join in the games, I play hockey with them, and you partake of the medals if you're a good team. When countries unite, they share in their military might, they share in their economic strength and their resources. In marriage, a couple unites together, lives together, they join together in intimacy, they share their money, they share their bodies, they join in building a family. So we understand these terms of unity and union. And so to be united to Christ is to be joined to him by the Spirit. But there's one difference. In all of these analogies, whether it's sports teams, countries, marriage, we all contribute jointly to the cause, as it were. We all jointly give the benefits to the union. Not so in Christianity. The benefits all flow from Jesus Christ. He is the head. All of the blessings come from him. And that is why in the book of Revelation, when God crowns the church with everything the church has done, with saints who have labored in the vineyard, at the end, they cast their crowns back before the throne, recognizing that from him and to him and through him are all things. To God be the glory. Christians, we are baptized to the glory of God. Look what the text says next. We are baptized into his death. When Jesus died, this is what we have to realize. Going down into the water is a picture of dying. Going down burying, dying, death. When Jesus died on the cross, we sang it this morning, God the Father poured on Jesus Christ in an inexplicable way the wrath that he had on sin, the wrath that you and I deserve. And so to share in Christ's death is to participate in that sacrifice that happened 2,000 years ago in history. By the Spirit, we are joined to Christ's wrath-absorbing death. You know, it's, it's really easy to forget that. I think even as Christians, we forget this. As soon as we sin and, and we do something wrong, we start to work at our spiritual accounting book. We're so good at doing this. We think, oh, I, I did something wrong, now i got to do something right to make up for it. And we back and forth, and we think the ledger is debits and credits, and, and that we have to do that. The reality is this, that on the cross, Jesus yelled or cried out before he died, tetelestai in the Greek, it is finished. He finished the wrath. He absorbed the wrath. It's done. Death is final. Christ's answer is he has paid it in full. We don't need to hold up this accounting book. All our sins are vanquished, done away with in Jesus Christ. And so going into the water this morning, you will see a testimony of the death to sin. Paul goes on, verse 4. Therefore we are buried with him. See that again, another union clause. We had it in death, now we have it in burial. 
Notice the word therefore. The words therefore and so that and in order that are vital words in Paul's arguments. We use them in logic. We use them when we make a case for something. The apostle Paul here is building a case. And so he says, therefore, or consequently, we are buried with him by baptism into death. And so he's drawing a conclusion to this death. Now let's step back and see the flow of thought here for a second. First of all, Paul here is intensifying the picture of baptism by moving from death to burial. Right? Jesus died on the cross and he was taken and buried in a tomb. Burial is a final statement. If you've been at a funeral before, you know that when the body is placed into the grave, it's final. And the shovels of dirt go over it. And so burial is almost like saying it's done. It's over. It's an intensification. And so by saying this, Paul is saying as a final statement, when Christ was buried, his sacrifice was complete and the battle with sin was won. And therefore, again, in union, we share in that. Now, if we look at our lives and we see sometimes the, uh, the battle with sin that rages, it almost seems surreal at times to think this way because we all realize we're not perfect yet. We still sin. We still do wrong things. I, I treat my spouse wrongly, right? I do all kinds of things wrong. Maybe, maybe it's discontentment. Maybe you have a job and, and you're discontent with your job. Some of us might be discontent with our looks. For others, it's our home. I want a better home. And and we deal with indwelling sin of discontentment. For others of us, it's pride. Maybe that pride in you caused that snappy remark this week that severed a relationship or that brought coldness. Maybe it was an impatient gesture. Maybe it was your arrogant response to your spouse when she was just asking you a question. For others, maybe this week it was compromise. You know you shouldn't have gone there, but you did. Maybe you did a shady business deal. Maybe you clicked on the link on your phone or on your iPad that you know you should not have clicked on. Maybe maybe it was a gossip. You joined in and slandered your neighbor and gossiped about them. The Apostle Paul reminds us in this that though we are dead and buried with Christ to our old slave master's sin, the battle still rages fiercely and strongly. And yet, in union, in baptism, I am recognizing that in an absolute In a final way, I am delivered from the guilt and the bondage to sin. That leads me to the second point. Vivified, made alive. Verse 4 again, therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, 
even so we also should walk in newness of life. Notice the flow of the argument here again. Therefore we are buried that like. So so that would be another way to translate that from the Greek. Therefore we are buried with the purpose that, with the intent that, we don't stay in the grave. We don't stay under the water. If you stay under the water, you will die. We go down and we come up because there's new life. It pictures a new reality. And the purpose of that is to live in the new life. That's vivification, being made alive. But notice what it says. Christ came out of the grave by the glory of the Father. It was the, through the glorious, majestic, matchless power of God the Father that Jesus was risen from the dead. And that makes sense. God raised him from the dead. Jesus, being God, was raised from the dead. We need to, to reckon with this. Because the resurrection of Christ is unprecedented in history. People don't do this. Normally death is final and it's over and it's ended. But Christ rose through the matchless power of God. And therefore we are new creatures as the spirit unites us to Jesus Christ. And therefore we can live in the newness of this life. I love what uh, one commentator, Robert Haldane, in the, I believe, 1800s, he wrote this. He said, believers are dead to the guilt of sin. And if so, the ground of their separation from God being removed, so there's no more separation. His almighty power is engaged and exerted. So God's power now is engaged and exerted to cause them to walk with their risen Lord in that new Life which they drive from him. New life given by Jesus Christ. You know, when I was a kid, many years ago, one Sinterklaas, we called it, is a Dutch Christmas. We grew up in celebrating December 5th. It was kind of like the Christmas. So we got all these presents, and one of them was Digger Dams. Now, most of you guys don't know what Digger Dams are. If you do, that would be amazing. Digger Dams were these um, battery-powered trucks, construction trucks, and they had dozer blades on them. They were really cool. And um, what we would do is we'd take kernels of corn and spread them on the uh, kitchen floor, the lino, and we would bulldoze them around and load them up and do all kinds of fun things with them. However, the battery would run out. There was two double A's in there, and you're done. So after a couple hours of playing, it was over, and... Uh, you know, we pretty soon depleted all the batteries that were in the house. And my mom's like, well, that's it. And we're like, we need more hours of playing here. And so we went to town and bought rechargeables. Now we had endless power because we could plug into the wall, load those rechargeables and play. You know the cycle, right? Rechargeables. And it was great. And we spent hours. We burned the motors on those things before they went. Man, it was hours of playing with that. But we had limitless power to play. We had limitless power to engage the task. That's interesting because before Christ, before union to Christ, the power to walk in holiness could not last. Outside of Jesus, no holiness. Oh, you can make resolves. Oh, you can try all kinds of things, but it will not last. Our efforts were futile. There was a fatal problem. 
we were sold to sin. The battery would dry up. It would run out. And so the way we live our new life in Christ is empowered to God. It's not stale. It's not done by self-motivation and self-determination. We don't live as believers as though our rigorous attempts to keep a list or rules or do these things as if they carry us, as if the Christian life is all about what I place on my shoulders and carry forward. That won't carry you forward. No, we look to almighty power of God to carry us forward. We live in the power of a new life empowered by the Spirit of God. Why would I then want to surrender my thoughts again to me, to King Self? And, and in, in living for me, it's so backwards then. I deserve that attention, we might think, or I'm entitled to do what I want. I can think what I like, and I am my own master. You know what's one of my favorite verses in the Bible? It is a powerhouse verse, and it's also a union passage. Union, I love the doctrine of union, because it says this in Colossians 3. Seek those things that are above where your life is hid with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. Now, so it says, set your affection, your mind, on your union with Christ. I am dead with him. I'm a dead man walking, and yet I live. Okay, that's what he says. And in Colossians 3, verse 5, he says, mortify, therefore your members on earth. So the entire life of mortification, of holy living, and living for God is done with a gaze up to my union with Jesus Christ. This is vital. This is the horsepower that drives the Christian life. This is what baptism all displays. And so, the third point, vitalized. Verse 5. For if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. You notice verse 5 opening up with the explanatory conjunction for. Anytime you see the word for, you've got to ask, well, why is it there? And it's there to explain or to further buttress the argument. So for, if you were planted together with his death, you shall also in the likeness of his resurrection. So he's going to explain further this union business. The word to be planted together is very rare in the Greek, but it implies plants that are placed in a common seed bed that will then intermingle their roots and grow up intermingled and together at the same time. And again, union, right? Seeds going together, roots intertwining, coming up together. That's union language. And Paul, again, borrowing that, emphasizes our total union. But notice in the text, and it's not super clear in the English, but it is there definitely in the Greek. It says, for if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, you notice how it says, we shall be also. There's actually a very strong adversative here in the Greek. Certainly, certainly, it's, it's that's the best way to say that, we shall certainly in his resurrection, certainly in the likeness of his new life. And so Paul is using strong words here to remind us of the new life. The other interesting thing here, again in the Greek, that you won't catch in the English, but again, I, I just love this because in the Greek, Paul's packaging all kinds of just force behind the words here. He shifts in the tenses. 
And this is striking. So the first part, for if we have been planted together, that's what's in known as the perfect tense. Now, the perfect tense in the Greek, I always tell, I say this often, is something that happened in the past, but the effects remain into the present. So if you have been buried with Christ, you have died with Christ, the effects of that continue on. But notice the shift. It says, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. That's not a perfect tense. That's a future. That's what we anticipate. And so he's shifting from the perfect abiding state we have as new believers, dead with Christ, who are alive and yet anticipating new resurrection life. So we hasten, we look for the day of Jesus' return. We are living the new life now, but we are also always looking to the end. Because if you turn on your television or you read the news and you read about the wars, the difficulties, people in hospitals, the hurts, the cancers, when you read about broken families, when you read about people that are living in abject poverty, when you see all of that, you wonder, where's the hope? We hope in the return of Jesus Christ when he is coming again. And no one can take that hope away from the believer because we are planted together with him in life. No government can take that away. No war can take that away. Not demons, not death. Nothing will take that hope away from us. Today, we will witness in baptism a symbol of what God really does. He makes people who were dead alive. And therefore, God's grace does not at all call us to moral anarchy. Rather, it frees us to live holy lives. As many of you guys know, a couple of years ago, uh, we had to build a new house. Our old house, our farmhouse, got flooded for the third time, and it was pretty much mold-ridden, and we had to abandon ship. It wasn't worth it anymore. Wood basement and lots of rot. And so we built a new house just behind it, and that took a year and a half. In the meantime, we lived upstairs because we couldn't be in the basement anymore. And so it was a really bonding time to be upstairs and the kids sleeping in the living room, and which meant they stayed up longer or we had to go to bed earlier, one of the two. But it was really interesting. However, as we lived there, we were watching the, old, the new house sorry, get built. And as you're watching that, you walk through the, the ever-changing house and you start to envision where you'll be putting things and you think about how you want the paint and you think about what you'll hang up where and where the kids will sleep, all this stuff. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? And all the while, when we were doing that, we didn't live there yet, but we anticipated the move. We couldn't wait for the move. And yet we were living in the old house that was too soon to be destroyed. The one thing we would not do is invest in the old house. We're not going to renovate the old house, paint the walls for that last year. You wouldn't do that. Nobody would do that. And yet, so often, so many Christians invest 
in the old house. Christians, do not invest in the dead, sinful flesh. Live towards that day when Jesus Christ comes back. Already now invest in the holiness, in the communion with Jesus Christ. One day you will enter into eternal glory with him. Set your mind there. Set your affection there. Invest 100% in that kingdom. Now it will not be taken away. And that leads us to the fourth point. Verified. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. This is a further explanation. You see that? Knowing this. He now introduces the reality of what he calls the old man. You see that language? That means your former way of life, who we were before Christ changed us, our sinful nature, our love for sin. And he says very explicitly, the old man was crucified. It hung on the cross as it were with him. But to what purpose? To what purpose? You see again in the middle of that sentence in verse 6, that the body of sin might be destroyed. It's annihilated. The entire mass of sin, the body, he's again using picture language by saying the old man, as it were, was destroyed. Which means this. It doesn't mean some sin. It means all sin destroyed. Robert Haldane again says everything, all my pride, all my sinful ambitions, all my idolatry, all my impatience, all lusts must be severed, all gossips must be rid, all jealousy must be destroyed, every sin crucified with Jesus Christ. And so we, in Christ, as Christians, risen with him, united with him, must wage the war, not against man, but against sin. This is really practical for Paul. He says that henceforth we should not serve sin. You see that little word henceforth from now on. Your life can never be the same. From the day of your conversion, we should no longer serve the old slave master sin. This is in the Greek in what's known as the present tense. The present tense is a continual tense. That means this continual battle rages every day. Daily surrender, daily commitment, daily death to self, daily reminding ourselves that we do not live for me. I don't live for me. We don't live for, for um, my, our little businesses. We don't live for all the things of this world. We live for one, Jesus Christ, his kingdom, his glory, his righteousness. You know, and I love this. I love this verse because it actually tells us that I am freed to resist the devil. I am freed in Jesus Christ and empowered to bear that fruit to holiness. This entire verse is a statement of verified truth. You see the language? Knowing this. Rest in what you know. Because at times you will be deceived to believe something else. Somebody or something else is going to feed your mind with something else. But knowing this, turn back to scripture, that when you are tempted, when you are discouraged, when it seems unable, it seems unable that you can win the fight, remember what you know from the word of God. This is our final authority. And so Christian, we must know this. Our bondage to sin was crucified. We've talked about that. And so don't, don't despair. Don't be dejected because of failure. Move on. Christ was victorious. Christ was successful. 
and the battle is over. Lastly, look at verse 7. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, in some of your Bibles, you'll see a little number two or something, a footnote there, the word freed. I looked up many, many versions here in the English. Most of them translated as freed. But the Greek here is dikaio, dikaio, which means righteousness or justified. And some other translations will use that. And I think it's interesting because why do most then opt for the word freed? Because if you look at verse 18, verse 20, and verse 22, you'll see the same word being made free. It says free, free, free three times, but they're not the same word. So the word in verse 7 is peculiar. It's unique. Why is he using a different word? And the translators still opt to translate it as freed. What's going on here? And so we need to look at this for a second, and I'll do it very briefly. Remember, the whole context is union. Union with everything Christ has won. We are together with him, both in death and coming out of the water in life. United to his death, again, means the sentence of guilty that was on our hearts is removed because he bore it for us. The blood of Jesus Christ satisfied God's wrath. That's what death meant. Union to everything he's accomplished. Therefore, because I am now acquitted in that union, because I am now declared righteous by Jesus Christ, therefore, I am clear of all charges against me because of my sin. And then I am free. The man who walks into the courthouse and the gavel goes down and he's acquitted based on someone else bearing the punishment can walk out a free man. And that is the kind of language the Apostle Paul here is using. He's borrowing legal terms to implicate realities of life, of freedom, of who we are, what we are. And this is really straightforward then. Get this, without that acquittal, without the gavel saying, you're a free man, you may walk free. If you don't have that, where are you going? You're still enslaved. There's still bondage. But now as free people, acquitted of all charges, we can now live differently. And that we call in theology, justification in the courthouse and sanctification in life, becoming more holy. This is huge. This morning in baptism, we're going to see the display of union to Christ's sin-absorbing death and life-giving resurrection, acquitting us of all our sins and empowering us to live for him. Robert Haldane says it this way again. He says, the moment, therefore, that the sinner is brought into union with Christ, in that moment, the source of sanctification, so holy living, is opened up and streams of purifying grace flow into his soul. He is delivered from the law whereby sin had dominion over him. He is one with him who is the fountain of all holiness. What a beautiful picture. Maybe you're here this morning and 
You don't have a clue what that all means. Maybe you're not united to Christ. You don't even get what this means. Maybe you're that person that's chasing the dreams of this world. Your sports, your cars, your health, your athletics, your career, your relationships. You know, let's be honest. These things all fade and pass away. We're all getting older and older. That new car gets a dent. Pretty soon a head gasket goes. Tires get old. It's gone. Look at our bodies. They wrinkle. They gray. They get old. It's all fading. Relationships. People pass on. People move. You've maybe been, like I said, at a funeral where you had to bury someone that you were so close with, that you loved so dearly. Life is fleeting. You might have gone to church all your life. You might have sang the songs, prayed the prayers, tried to be that moral person. But if you are not united to Jesus Christ, it's all vain. And you are not acquitted. You are not a free person. Without union to Christ, his death means nothing to you. His life is completely of no value to you. If you are outside of Jesus Christ this morning, you will bear your own sins before God on judgment day, and you will be condemned to hell. That's the sobering reality. Your sin will find you out. Resolve will not break the shackles of your bondage to sin. Have you ever seen the picture of a, of a prisoner trying to tear apart the shackles that were on his ankles and he couldn't do it? That's what you will do if you continue to, to frantically try to look at your own strength and yourself. Trying to be a good person, trying to keep the law, will not do it. Because it will only heap further condemnation because you sin every day. We are all sinners. Like I said, we can't keep the Ten Commandments in and of ourselves. So what do you do? What do you do? When a massive forest fire is heading your way, what's the safest place to stand? You ever seen that in Africa when a storm grass fire is coming and the natives take a little bit of fire and they light some of the grass in front of them and it burns ahead of them and where do they stand where the fire has already been and that's what Christianity is we stand united by faith on him who bore the fire him who bore the wrath we stand looking ahead and looking back and say Jesus Christ by faith I embrace him he is my righteousness because he went on the cross and bore the judgment of God for me will you flee to him don't just meander flee to him you need him he gave himself freely for sinners for people like you and I to save us from us and if you trust in him alone God will unite you by his spirit to his son. And then what do you do? Get baptized. 
Display to the world that you are a new believer united to Jesus Christ. And all that baptism this morning that we're going to do here in a second will picture our total union to Christ. Sin vanquished. We vivified, made a life. The vitality of new life begun. And all of this God has verified in his word. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, we come before you recognizing that in ourselves we have so much sin. We have nothing good that we can contribute. We can't break the shackles. But you have. Christ perfectly kept the law and bore the sin of the wrath of God. On, our, on himself. And so Lord may we turn to him. I just pray that as we watch this morning. Baptism. We would remember the new life. That belongs to the baptized. In Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.